The new season proves Better Call Saul remains one of the finest shows on television with visually ambitious storytelling used to depict complex characters headed for a tragic end. That's from Eric Deggins of NPR. Better Call Saul is one of the shows we're talking about this time here on Cinephile. Again, a more TV-slanted version here of Cinephile, as right now everybody is self-quarantining. Hope everybody is safe and at home right now. I'll also be talking about The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel Season 3. We're six episodes in a Better Call Saul, watching that in real time. But I was able to binge-watch Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, and uh, I'll have my review of that coming up. Also, I'm not exaggerating here. This is one of the best guests we've ever had on the show. Patrick Gallo who was in my favorite movie of the year, The Irishman, and was in my favorite scene of the year when Pacino and Stephen Graham, Jimmy Hoffa, and Tony Pro go back and forth after they're trying to reconcile. Tony Jack is Patrick Gallo, the actor who's going to join me today on Cinephile. He tells some unbelievable stories about being in that scene with Al Pacino and Robert De Niro, eight hours it took them to do the scene, uh, stories about Scorsese, how he got the role. Uh, I mean, it's, I, I, I can't undersell it enough. Trust me. It's one of the best interviews we've had on Cinephile. You're going to want to listen to Patrick Gallo, his stories of the Irishman, Al Pacino, and Bob De Niro, and so much more. Plus, we'll do our Mount Rushmore, as always. And Total Recall, uh, the movies of 1997, which is 1998 Academy Awards. The reason I want to do this is I talked about Yuli's Gold last week, and I kept thinking, like, how the hell did Peter Fonda not win Best Actor? So I wanted to go back to that year because Fonda won a litany of awards in in critics uh, groups prior to the Oscars for Yuli's Gold, but didn't end up winning the Oscars. So we're going to redo that year of 1997. You may remember it because of another major name, and that would be James Cameron and Titanic. Uh, we'll get to that in just a second. But first, let's do some reviews here, folks. Better Call Saul, one of the best shows on TV, isn't it? In season five of the critically acclaimed show, Jimmy McGill's decision to practice law as Saul Goodman creates unexpected and profound waves of change throughout Albuquerque's legal and illegal circles. Kim Wexler finds herself at a crossroads as her connection with Jimmy deepens. Racked with guilt and regret, Mike Ehrmantraut hits rock bottom. Meanwhile, Nacho Varga tries to survive as Gus Fring's covert war on the cartel becomes a life-and-death chess match with a mercurial and relentless Lalo Salamanca. You know, this was such a big risk. I mean, this was such an enormous risk. I mean, you got to have a pair on you to do this, what Vince Gilligan did. You put together Breaking Bad, which is one of the greatest dramatic shows of all time, and then say, you know what? I want to keep going with this. I love the locale, the image, and we're going to do a spinoff with the comic relief character of Jimmy McGill. And it's like, well, hang on a second. Bob Odenkirk is amazing on Breaking Bad because it's a small character. It's, it's comedic doses. He comes in for five or 10 minutes. He's amazing. He steals the scene, steals the episode, but then that's it. Nobody wants to see this guy for an entire episode. Like he's a clown. It's it's a one-note joke. He's a huckster lawyer. He's a shyster lawyer. And Odenkirk plays him brilliantly because he's such a fast talker and smarter than people realize. But he has no scruples. He has no moral upstanding. He will help criminals uh, like Walter White and Jesse and help anybody because he's in it for himself. Now, who the hell would want to watch that for an entire show? But Vince Gilligan said, no, no, we got something here. And that's why Mount Rushmore is going to be the greatest spinoffs of all time. Because I think it was just so smart of him to realize that there was storytelling to be done with Jimmy McGill, whereas I, like many others, I think, were skeptical, skeptical, excuse me, of how well it was going to work out. And from the beginning, it hit the right note because Jimmy McGill, as I mentioned on Breaking Bad, is funny. He's an entertaining character. And he still has lots of funny moments on Better Call Saul. But this is not a comedic show. This is a dramatic show. And whereas Breaking Bad, his character was light and funny and, you know, twisting all around and able to circumvent all the menace that was around him. This is a tragedy. Like, make no mistake, this is about a guy who had integrity named Jimmy McGill, who then is beaten down by life and morphs into a crook named Saul Goodman. And it's to Odenkirk's credit that he's able to play the character with such subtlety. You, know, you often look at comic actors who can do drama so well, and Odenkirk, you can add to that list of Jim Carrey or Mike Myers or so many others, Tom Hanks, of course, along the way. And that's why you know, Odenkirk succeeds in the show because he's unafraid of where the journey is taking him. He knows where Saul Goodman ends up because he's already played the role. Now it's a matter of showing all the little steps along the way. And season five in particular has been really strong out of the gate. I thought season three and four maybe got a little wayward. Um, you know, at times it is slow pacing and you could you kind of rev this sucker up a little bit. But I do appreciate that Vince Gilligan does not waste any time. Visually, it's astonishing. 
I mean, you watch an episode of Better Call Saul and you go, what's the budget on this thing? And it's just so unique the way they shoot it and these you know, long lenses and that beautiful New Mexico landscape. They'll always look for unorthodox moves with which to begin a scene or end a scene. This is just visually speaking. And the writing is always so smart. The, the episodes always end not on a cliffhanger, but on a surprise note, whether it's Kim and Jimmy you know, throwing beer bottles off a balcony or the episode that's just happened Monday night in which she suggests they get married after saying maybe they should break up and end this thing. I mean, it's, he knows how to end an episode and to keep his audience hooked. Gilligan is just a master storyteller in those respects. The one aspect that I do miss, for those who have not seen the show and you want to go binge watch it, first of all, you should. And if you do, you realize one of the best aspects of the show, which I really miss a lot, was Michael McKean. Talk about another comedic actor playing Jimmy's brother. And he played him so well. I mean, this is an older brother that Jimmy reveres. And the way that McKean plays him is he's brilliant, but he's also ruthless and mean-spirited towards Jimmy and just cold and bullying at times and contemptuous of his little brother who he does not take seriously, who's not at his level. And yes, there's love there because they're brothers, but at the same time, you know, Jimmy's affection for his older brother is stronger than the brother's for his younger sibling. And amidst that, amidst that tough outer shell is this heartbreaking vulnerability. And McKean's character suffers from this terrible mental illness. And the fact he's terrified of anything with electronics and like, you know, he wraps himself in foil paper when he goes outside the house and the way they shoot it. I mean, that that character is one of the most underrated characters ever, I think, in a TV show. Michael McKean was able to do playing Jimmy McGill's brother. It's it's amazing. And I remember my brother told me Vince Gilligan said that the inspiration for it is my favorite documentary, which is called Crumb. That's about Robert Crumb, who is the famous underground cartoonist who had these just tormented upbringing. And it was able to mine some humor out of that and put that into his art and this underground comics, which became a huge sensation. He's got these brothers who are just so demented and twisted. And I guess that's where Gilligan found some inspiration for it. The rest of the supporting cast is also uniformly strong. Not only Mark, Mike Aaron Trout, uh, of course, that character is just so good. Jonathan Banks is the actor who plays him. Uh, again, you remember him from Breaking Bad. Giancarlo Esposito, who was so good on Breaking Bad. He's back once again. But the real find here is Ray Seahorn as Kim Wexler. I think she's flat out one of the best actresses working in television right now. I could watch Ray Seahorn do anything. I think she is so perfect in that role with that hair pulled back and that butt and those business suits and such icy reserve I mean, maybe it's just because I love old movies so much, but I swear she reminds me of like Kim Novak, straight out of Vertigo. Like it's amazing watching her performance because, you know, she's attractive, but she's also very buttoned up and very repressed. And you can feel all this emotion bubbling under the surface and she tries to keep it there. And she loves Jimmy. She loves him more than anything, but realizes that her conscience is getting the better of her and that she can't keep going down this path of trying to, you know, evade the law with these, with these smart moves, which eventually it's like, it's like, you know, when you're in trouble, eventually she's going to catch up to you. And that's what her, her face is etched with that all the time. But again, she's got genuine emotion for Jimmy, um, especially after her brother passes. I mean, after his brother passes, excuse me, in the scene where she starts crying for reading the letter. I mean, that's, that's about as good as screen acting gets. And uh, the first season has an episode which just focused on Mike and his backstory, which happened to his son. That episode's a great standalone episode. If you haven't seen it, go back and watch that. Uh, straight out of a film noir, Mike uh, going back into his former life. So listen, Better Call Saul, it's as good as it gets on television. I'm giving it four Maple Leafs. I'm just amazed they were able to pull it off, and it's uh, it's must see television, Joe. In my opinion, I'm glad you're beating the uh, Rhea Seahorn drum because after the 2019 Emmy nominations came out, she was the number one person. Everyone was saying, "How could you not give a nomination to Rhea Seahorn for Better Call Saul? She's the best thing on the show." So I'm glad to hear that confirmation from you. Oh, I agree, man. Like it, it's tough to top Odenkirk because he's so likable and so endearing. But I. I will echo those sentiments. Ray Seahorn is the best part of Better Call Saul. I think she could do anything. I swear to God. If I could buy stock in an actress, I'd buy it in her. I think she's so good at playing that role. I mean, it's, and you're right. Like, it's a crime. At this point, they're in the season five, for God's sakes. They're only going to have one more season after this. This is the penultimate year, and she's never been nominated for an Emmy. I mean, she did uh, our boy Feinberg's podcast, Hollywood, uh, what is it, Hollywood Chatter, for, for the Hollywood Report, excuse me, Awards Chatter, which you should all listen to. And I remember, Scott, you're right. He was appalled afterwards that Racy Horn was snubbed. It's just, it's, uh, it's shocking. But uh, she's great. The show is great. So check it out if you get a chance. Next show to talk about is The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Season three, I just binge watched. Again, this is a real awards favorite. Uh, won the Emmy Award for her best uh, comedic show for season one. I believe season two lost to Fleabag. 
although maybe one for season two. Joe will fact check me on this, the uh, Emmy history here of Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. But Rachel Brosnahan is one for Best Actress. She's amazing. As I talked to Feinberg previously on Cinephile, Al Pacino, of all people, my favorite actor, you know, when they were getting him to do Hunters, he didn't really know much about Amazon Prime, so they gave him uh, Marvelous Mrs. Maisel to watch. And he loves Rachel Brosnahan. Like, he literally was saying this to Feinberg. He's like, oh, my God. Like, what, what do you want? What, what does Al Pacino watch at night? He watches The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. And he's like, ah, oh, bro, that girl, she's great. Rachel Brosnahan. Like, he's just raving about Rachel Brosnahan in his Upper West Side apartment. Uh, but she's amazing. Again, speaking of great actresses, this should be the great actress in a file. Not only is it Ray Seahorn, but Rachel Brosnahan, I think, as gifted as a comedic actress right now in television. Um, she's just beginning what I think is going to be a wonderful career. Because again, for what that show is about, Maisel, for those who are unaware, listen, she is this 1950s housewife, okay? She's stuck behind a life that is frustrating, but then realizes her gift is in comedy. And after her husband's cheating on her and wants to leave her, she goes and does stand-up and it becomes a huge hit. And with that unlikely premise, it becomes a really endearing show. Season three specifically, Midge and Susie discover that life on tour with Shy is glamorous but humbling. They learn a lesson about how show business they'll never forget. Joel struggles to support Midge while pursuing his own dreams. That's her ex-husband. Abe embraces a new mission. That's Tony Shalhoub. And Rose learns that she has talents of her own. By the way, a couple more blurbs I want to read on Better Call Saul. I'm going back now. Better Call Saul from Richard Ewan Ferguson of The Observer. Better Call Saul continues to be the consistently underrated best thing on Netflix since the start of its penultimate series a few weeks ago. It's bowling along with its slow but unstoppable momentum. And Ben Travers of IndieWire, all of these consistently astonishing formal touches combine to create a value that outweighs the pain. Yes, Better Call Saul is a double-edged sword of reward and loss, but it isn't too sad to watch because you're too invested to look away. Man, those are some good blurbs. All right, back to May which is a completely different show. It's light. It's fairly... Listen, a lot of shows you have to find some personal affection for. I love the era of the 1950s, despite the virulent racism. I wish I could have been alive at that time. I love the songs. I love the cars. I love the clothes. And Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, more than anything, is tremendous eye candy. Eight episodes I binge watch, and I just look at that, and I marvel at the production design. They must put so much effort and money into the meticulous nature of finding all the details right. Literally, the color of her clothes, Mrs. Maisel. Like, it's just so bright and frilly. Uh, the steady cam work is amazing. I mean, you talk about great directing on TV shows. Watch an episode of Marvelous Mrs. Maisel and look at that steady cam. Like, these are like orchestrated shots. They must do take after take of rehearsal. In many ways, it reminds me of a play because, especially when they're in the apartment, I mean, the camera just swoops in and watches them as they go off and on. And, and I mean, the, the dialogue is so rat a tat tat. It's like a Neil Simon play. You know, it's like Lost in Yonkers or something. Helped by the fact, of course, it's New York Jews in 1950s, but it's got that whole rhythm to it, which I think is amazing. And I think that rhythm and that energy translates on the screen. My concern with it is I think at times it's a little bit light, much like eye candy. Is there real much substance to it? In the first few episodes, I think there's really not a whole lot of meat on the bone, but episodes four or five, six, seven, and eight. So the second half, which is to say is very, very strong. And I think it's smart because it starts to look at commentary, not only about this housewife who's become unshackled as this new wave of women, independent woman. I mean, the husband's raising the kids. She's off on tour doing comedy but also for African-Americans, the character Shy Baldwin, the great Sterling K. Brown, who Joe and I love. He plays the manager for Shy Baldwin, who is the lead singer, the concert tour that Maisel's on. Sterling K. Brown can do no wrong as well. He's awesome in the show. I wish he actually got to do more. It's a supporting role, but he's always tremendous. Um, and I mean, the rest of the cast, Alex Borstein's really funny. She's on Family Guy. I believe she does the voice of Meg. She plays the manager, Susie. She's got a handful of great lines. I mean, at one point, they're putting a face mask on, and she goes, what is this? Just sits on your face like a French whore? I mean, she's tossing out one line after one like that. And of course, I haven't even mentioned yet my favorite part of the show, Tony Shalhoub, one of my favorite actors, Big Night, one of the all-time classics. I've never even seen Monk, and yet I just love Tony Shalhoub. From Green Bay, huge Packers fan. This season, there's not a whole lot of him. That's my only criticism of this season. There's not a whole lot of Shalhoub. His, his uh, storyline, I don't think, had much meat on the bone. Uh, him and the character of Rose Weissman, his wife, played by Marin Hinkle. But Shalhoub, if you watch the first two seasons, it's amazing. And again, Joe will verify. He's definitely won at least one, if not two Emmys for his performance as Abe Weissman. Definitely won like a SAG award as well. So ultimately, I like the fact that they're not looking at female empowerment, but also racism and just the emptiness of showbiz life. But again, back to the energy and the style. There's one episode which starts the first 10 minutes. First 10 minutes, I swear to God, there's no let up. There's no cut. It's just her. Well, there's not. There's cuts, obviously, editing. But I mean, in terms of the rhythm and the movement, there's no let up. As far as Maisel, to supplement her income, starts doing voiceover work. And her and Susie start going to all these different uh, places. 
I mean, the cabs are flying around, the music's rolling, the camera's rolling, the music, the audio. I mean, it's just, it's like a symphony for the senses. And it really is an example of just how talented the people are who make The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. It's available on Amazon. Uh, obviously, I love the music. I mean, a ton of Louis Prima. You got Sinatra. Amy Sherman Palladino and Daniel Palladino are the executive producers. Amy Sherman Palladino is the creator of it. Some reviews, some of these are a little bit tepid. Matthew Gilbert of the Boston Globe. It can be a fun diversion, sweet in its willful irrelevancy, and alluring in its jovial rhythms. That's pretty good. Sophie Gilbert of the Atlantic. It's frustrating because the show keeps hinting that it's edging toward more substantial fare only to back out at the last minute. I think in the first few episodes, that's accurate. I think later on, it does actually have more substance. And Ben Travers of IndieWire. Season three could rebound in its back half. The focus just shift. Real problems could arise. And Brown, speaking of Sterling K. Brown, could get that juicy arc he deserves even without all that, the first five episodes are sure to please diehard fans. Okay, well, he's only seen the first five. I've seen all eight. I can tell you it's a show which is worthy of watching. And to close up, Joe, I often get criticized, rightfully so. My shows and my uh, interests are so male-dominant. It's nice to have a show which is a female lead, which you can watch with your wife, your girlfriend, significant other. Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, Three and a Half Maple Leafs. I dig it. And just to follow up, Tony Shalhoub, he won Outstanding Supporting Actor, in a comedy series at the 2019 Emmy Awards last fall. And Rachel Brosnahan won in 2018. And the show in 2018 won Outstanding Comedy Series. Gotcha. So the second season didn't do as well. Shalhoub won for Supporting Actor, but Brosnahan did win for Lead, and the show won for Best Series. Yep, yeah. And I will also mention that Alex Bornstein won for Supporting Actress at the Emmys last year as well. But yeah, definitely they cleaned up in 2018. 2019, they had a pretty good showing, but not nearly as dominant as 2018. All right, Fleabag coming along for the ride as well. Yeah. yeah. All right, one more movie before we talk about uh, some news, which is affecting all of this, of course, coronavirus in the entertainment world. Bobby Walker, Ben Affleck. This movie's called The Company Men. Ten-year anniversary of the movie, so I want to check it out. Never seen it before. And it's about Ben Affleck living the American dream. Great job, beautiful family, shiny Porsche in the garage. When corporate downsizing leaves him and co-workers Phil Woodward, Chris Cooper, and Gene McClary, Tommy Lee Jones, jobless, the three men are forced to redefine their lives as men, husbands, and fathers. Bobby soon finds himself enduring enthusiastic life coaching, a job building houses for his brother-in-law, played by Kevin Costner, which does not play to his executive skill set and perhaps the realization that there's more to life than chasing the bigger, better deal. I mentioned the movie because it's timely right now. I think we all know we're facing a real economic crunch, could be on the verge of another recession. And this movie came out just after the Great Recession and focused on, you know, the white collar, white man, older, losing his job, and then realizing what's he supposed to do with his life and just how bloodless and how cruel the corporate world can be. Karen James of Newsday, with a harrowing realism, the company men captures the raw personal impact of the economic meltdown. Also, Stephen Holden of the New York Times, Ben Affleck and Cress Cooper play characters who learn that in a company concerned about the bottom line, almost everyone is expendable. This movie may be a little too close to home right now, because I'm sure a lot of people right now are feeling the economic pinch, but I'm going to give it two and a half Maple Leafs. I liked it for the cast of Affleck, Jones, and Cooper, and Kevin Costner playing this real a hardworking laborer. I just found that, quite honestly, it's tough to have a lot of sympathy for a bunch of affluent white men. I mean, Affleck at one point is going for a job interview, and the woman tells me, how much are we making? He says, well, I was making 120 with bonuses, but I'm willing to settle for 110. And he says it with like this smarmy look on his face. And I'm like, listen, how can you build around a movie on these guys? And by the way, he's the cheapest of them. Chris Cooper's probably making at least 250. And Tommy Lee Jones is one of these like, very rich, rich executives, like multimillionaire. So I just think it's tough to build a movie around those guys who are hard to be sympathetic for, as good as those actors are, and as much empathy as you can have for anybody who loses their job. Of course, no matter how much you're making, it's very sad to go through. I couldn't imagine the depression, and especially for these men who really see themselves and their self-worth through their job, which is why I still like the movie and I do recommend it. But I just think ultimately, it's tough to rally around these guys when so many others have it so much worse off. Joe? I couldn't put it any better than what you just said. And I'm kind of realizing right now that today is kind of a Ben Affleck-centric show, much like last week. I'll, I won't say much more, but stay tuned. All right, exactly. Well done. Good tease. All right, so uh, entertainment news to pass along. Netflix picking up Kumail Nanjiani, Issa Rae's The Lovebirds, a week after being pulled from its April 3rd theatrical release because of concerns about coronavirus, The Lovebirds going to Netflix. It was set to be released via Paramount, but instead now it's going to be on Netflix. It's directed by Michael Showalter, 
I recognize that name because he directed The Big Sick, Kamal Nanjiani's uh, breakthrough movie. This is about a following a couple on the brink of a breakup and then become embroiled in a bizarre and hijinks-filled murder mystery. So Hollywood grappling with the closure of U.S. theaters. you got many more movies now being sent to VOD and digital services weeks early. Speaking of, I saw The Hunt is now available here on DirecTV in North Jersey, Bergen County. I also saw uh, The Invisible Man with Elizabeth Moth is available. But it's like 20 bucks. Come on, movie go, movie theaters, movie chains. Like, listen, I'm not paying 20 bucks. Give it to me for 10. I know, listen, the North Jersey price, which I've discussed, is like, you know, 14, 25 to see a movie. So I got to pay more for this? I guess the thought is you're watching it with a spouse or with a partner. So 20 bucks, 10 bucks each. No, normally I'm seeing movies solo here. Come on. Those movies should be 10 bucks right now. Like, I'm not going to pay 20 bucks to go see The Hunt. Uh, and at least in this case, The Lovebirds is going to be on. Netflix coming soon. I do really like Nanjiani's work. Speaking of Sonic the Hedgehog, which I had just been seeing in theaters and was robbed of, uh, it's now going to be released early digitally. Paramount announcing it will now come out on March 31st on VOD in America. So Sonic the latest movie to get accelerated toward the home market in the wake of nationwide closing. This is footsteps of movies like Bloodshot, The Way Back, and Pixar's latest classic, Onward, which also is going to be available on VOD. So it's interesting right now for movie theaters. Do you wait to just release the movie you know, in October of November you know, like what the Bond movie is doing or A Quiet Place 2, or do you release the movie on Netflix like The Lovebirds is doing or just try to put it on VOD, especially if it was just in theaters? Definitely a tricky time right now. It's a, There's no right answers here, Joe. None whatsoever. And I, I guess whatever affects their bottom line the least. And so I guess if these production companies can make more money now by putting it out on VOD and sacrificing the theatrical run, then... That's what they're aiming to do. But good for us. I'll watch Sonic the Hedgehog. I liked your review a few weeks ago, so I'm, <laughs> I'm excited to watch that on the 31st. I love it. Go Jim Carrey. Other news, this year's Cannes Film Festival has been postponed. Organizers announced March 19th. New dates being considered for the end of June. Of course, this is one of the crown jewels if you're a movie fan. Uh, the 73rd edition was set to take place May 12th to 23rd. The event in its modern history has never been canceled. So the French government is now trying to go to late June 4th. They've prohibited gatherings of 5,000 or more people in confined venues, which can organizers insist would have no impact on the festival. The largest venue, the Lumiere Theater, seats 2,300 people, but the country later upped the band to 1,000 people or more. So therefore, that would impact as far as movies being seen. And also, hooray for Netflix. Uh, they're pledging $100 million in relief to out-of-work production community. This is going towards third parties and nonprofit providing emergency relief. So I know Netflix gets a lot of criticism. But it's nice to see the fact that they're giving some money uh, towards people definitely in need right now. Now it's time for, I'm telling you, one of the best guests ever on Cinephile, Patrick Gallo, master storyteller right now. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. A pleasure to bring in Patrick Gallo. You can follow him on Twitter at Patrick Gallo, a guy who is a graduate of the prestigious American Musical and Dramatic Academy in New York City, acting, musical theater, dance. He's done it all. And the reason I want to talk to him is because he's a part of my favorite film of 2019, which was The Irishman. And he's a part of my favorite scene, which we're going to dive into here in detail. Patrick, first and foremost, thanks so much for the time. Welcome to Cinephile. Hey, thanks for having me, uh, Adnan. It's, a, it's a, a real pleasure to be here, brother. Patrick, I have seen that scene at least a dozen times. I mean, I saw The Irishman three times in theaters. I saw it at the New York Film Festival twice. I saw it the Friday night when it debuted in September. And then I saw it the next day. I took my wife for like a Saturday noon showing. So twice in 24 hours. And then I saw it again with a buddy of mine a month later in Montclair, New Jersey. 
And now on Netflix, I mean, we have the pleasure of watching it over and over. But that scene, you're playing Tony Jack, for those who are unfamiliar, and you've got Al Pacino playing Jimmy Hoffa and Tony Pro, played by Stephen Graham, coming together. And that sit-down with the two of them is so perfectly orchestrated from all levels. You know, the writing, obviously, Scorsese's direction, Steve Zillian wrote the script. But I want to ask you about you specifically, because I think it's critical what you bring to the role and that scene in particular, because... You and De Niro are both supposed to be guys who are in the middle, right? You're trying to reconcile these two guys. And I thought you were perfect as far as nailing the tempo of, hey, we're just trying to have a meeting here. Like, you know, just settle down. Jimmy, like, take it easy. When Hoffa starts to lose his mind a little bit. But but take me a step back. How did you get the part in the first place? Is it because I'm guessing you were in Boardwalk Empire, so Scorsese had some familiarity with your work? Uh, I don't, you know, I I mean, I I was called in to read for the role. And and interesting how Scorsese does it where, you know, a lot of the uh, the smaller roles in his films, uh, you know, he'll kind of have one monologue, um, which was actually uh, so that a, a lot of actors will, will audition with that one monologue. That won't be the role, but he just wants to see that. And then he decides where he may want to use those actors. Um, so actually, if you remember the Whispers of Tulio um, scene with uh, De Niro at the table, um that was a monologue that a lot of us read auditioned with. Um, and then we, then later on down the line, we found out, you know, when we found out we got cast, um, we were told what role it was. So, um, that was it. I went in, I did that monologue. Um, and, uh, when he pitches to, uh, De Niro to go and, uh, check out the, um, the laundry, uh, what was it called? The, um, Cadillac, the Cadillac Laundry. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, Cadillac Laundry. So anyway, so, uh, and then that was it. And I didn't really know. I, I, it was like a couple, it was like a month or two before I even found out that I was on a veil being held for it, which that alone was like a mind blower. And then I found out that I booked it and, uh, and then still didn't even find out what role it was until another like month down the road when I finally was told. So it was an interesting process because, you know, I'd tell people, hey, I got this role. And they'd be like, what is it? And I was like, not really sure. It's hard to tell. Um, but that was it. And then, uh, you know, then, of course, it came to light that it was Tony Jack. And uh, even through the whole process, though, the scenes kept changing what we were going to do a scene in an airport. And, you know, we were it was it was never really set until like right before we would shoot. I would get the sides and then it would be confirmed. This is the scene we're shooting and this is where we're going to go. Well, and I want to get into the exact verbiage in a second, but let me go through the fact, like you said, you get this role, you're telling your friends, hey, I've been a Martin Scorsese movie, I don't know exactly what I'm doing, we'll figure it out. And then in the scene, you're with two of the greatest actors of all time, Al Pacino and Robert De Niro. How are you, like, as an actor, for all the actors listening, how are you able to, like, steady your nerves? Take me through the process. Like, how would you sleep the night before? What, what were you doing as far as trying to just get in the character and realize, all right, hey, just, just, just breathe, just, just be you. You've been an actor for, you know, decades, just get this thing done. Yeah, it was, uh, it was intense. I mean, I didn't really know. I, I, I knew when I got the role that I was like, there's a good possibility that I could do a scene with either De Niro or Pacino. I thought that, but I was like, that's a long shot. You know, I thought if that happened, that would be unbelievable. And I had no idea, but I would tell my mother, it's possible. I don't know. You know, we didn't have much information. Uh, the night before I got my the sides, which by the way, I had one line in the scene. Um, in the script. Uh, but Marty, and I'll tell you about that, you know, Scorsese let us do a lot of improv and, uh, and, and a lot more dialogue ended up in there. But as I was looking at the script the night before, I was like, Jimmy, Frank, Jimmy, Frank. And I was like, told my wife, I was like, I think that Jimmy, that it's Pacino and De Niro. I think I'm in a scene with Pacino and De Niro. I had no idea, but I was like, I think I am, unless these are different characters. Um, and then I got there in the morning and I was alerted to the fact that, you know, Bob and Al that, you know, they said, we'll be coming to meet you and this and that. And I was like, I can't even really believe what's happening right now. Um, and, uh, I, I had to separate, you know, the fan, um, I had to separate the actor who was so inspired by these guys and was a fan of their work to down to the, to the, to the tiniest grain of sand to say like, okay, put that aside you're, you're just, now you're just a colleague with them. You're, you're going to work with them. And 
It has nothing to do with what you've seen of them. It's right now. What's happening right now? You're a bunch of you're a bunch of New York actors sitting at a table and you're working and that's it. And uh, and that's how they treated me. So when I got in the room and I met um, Orsesi, which I had met on the uh, a couple of days or a month before that on another scene, and I met Al and and Bob, and it was like they were just like. You know, you were an equal. Immediately, you were an equal. And uh, and then we sat down. At the, and then at the end, they, they kind of emptied out the... Uh, before we shot the scene, they emptied out the soundstage. And they get about 70 people out of the soundstage. They empty it out. And then they, the assistant comes over to me and says, okay, you know, Marty wants you to come in now. And I'm thinking, I know who's in that room. And I know it's Gorsese, De Niro, Pacino, and Stephen Graham. And I'm thinking, I, I don't believe... And I know no one else is in there. And they walk me in, and Martin Scorsese says, come on, Patty, come on, sit down at the table. And then I'm sitting at the table with them, and we're all talking about the dynamics of the scene. And it was just ridiculous. I was like, this is, this is, <laughs> I can't believe. And I felt totally, totally comfortable. I didn't feel judged. I felt like we're all equals. We're all there to work on a scene. We're actors. You know, it's about the craft. And, uh, and that's all I felt. I felt total freedom. I was speaking, I was bringing up, you know, Marty said, what, what ideas, how are we, nobody knows how we're coming in, how are we going to walk in? And Stephen and I were like, all right, let's, let's improvise some walking in and, and let's try it out. And, and he would say, great, Marty, said, that's great. Perfect. That's it. That's it. So his trust in us and the choices that we were making were, he, he just fully 100% trusted us and let us dictate really how everything was going to go. That's fascinating. I love the fact you're giving that kind of detail to it because you're right, especially when you even when you walk in because you're right. That's a very subtle thing, but it's important that Stephen Graham walks in, Tony Pro arms big. You come in, you know, big guy. You give give De Niro a hug, give him a kiss on the cheek. You're right. Those details are so important as to like setting the scene and then what's to follow. So I love the fact it was so collaborative. Yeah, and that was all improv. We literally that that when we walked in, um. Scorsese said, you know, it's not in the script. How are we going to come in? And Stephen and I walked in, and that's what we did. And that was it. He was like, okay, that's it. So what you saw there was us literally going, what do you think of this? Shake, you know, shake Jimmy's hand. I gave Frank a hug. We have a history. You know, me and you know, it was, it, you know, the dynamics were there. And that was what we did. And, and, and that's exactly what ended up in the cut. I had read, and, and I, I love the fact that uh, Scorsese allows you guys to ad lib so much because that's what I've always read. You know, whether it was Goodfellas or any of number of his films, that he'll say, "Okay, here's what's on the page, and you guys go ahead." That whole scene with the with the <laughs> the ten minutes that Pacino is insisting that that's what you should wait for someone who's late, and Stephen Graham's character saying no fifteen, and then De Niro, I believe, ad lib twelve and a half. I love the way that your character comes in and goes beautiful, perfect. Like that is such that's that is like a perfect line right reading the of the middle. way you did it. Because again, you weren't overstating it. You're not, you're not like dominating the scene. De Niro gives the funny line, but your your method of support, I think, is so perfect. There you go, beautiful, beautiful, perfect, twelve and a half, perfect, right in the middle. Like that's great. Thanks, buddy. That's amazing to hear. Yeah, that was it. He totally, totally improvised that line. We did so much of that where we just sat there, um, and we improvised so much dialogue. I mean, so much didn't end up in that scene because he let it. Even Pacino at one point said. Uh, uh, we were, we finished it and Marty said, all right, cut. And we're going to, let's try it one more time. And, and Pacino went, Jesus Christ, Marty, what is this? A fucking play. Let's take it on the road. <laughs> so <laughs> That's amazing. Cause I remember, I mean, there's yeah. stories about, I remember Pacino. I mean, the famous scene in the heat with Hank Azaria. I, I spoke to Hank Azaria about that scene. You know, she's got a great ass. You get your head all yeah. the way up it. And Azaria goes, you don't understand. He goes, you know where that stems from? He goes, Michael Mann, Gives way too many takes. It's the worst. He goes, it should be five takes, 10 takes. He goes, he does like 30. I'm not exaggerating. He goes, so Al was so pissed by the end of it and he was so exhausted. And Michael Mann kept telling him to do more. He goes, that's why Pacino is so cartoonish in that take. And like some critics criticize him, like, oh, it's so over the top. I'm like, well, but Pacino was pissed off at that point. He's like, fine, you want to do a take? I'll give you a take. I'll go big. That's so funny yeah. that he said that. Yeah. But he said it and it was funny because it wasn't like frustration because he knew. Um, and we all, without question it was the the tone of the scene um it wasn't it was one that we were kind of like always 
excited to like re-explore. Like every time we had to do another take, it's like, okay, like every little tone that it touches in the scene was, was so kind of like, there was such an ease to it all uh, 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 underneath the tension. And there was so much to play with that we were like, yeah, well, we could, I mean, I literally could have done that scene for 24 hours straight. It, it just never felt exhausting. It, it never would considering who I'm sitting with, but it was just kind of like it flowed and everybody kind of was like, it was real, like just a bunch of kids playing sort of a, a really fun, quiet game of four square in the, in the playground, you know? Absolutely. And, and it, it's so funny. By the yeah. third time I saw it, I realized just how important the scene is because to your point, it actually impacts everything because the only way that Pacino's Jimmy Hoffa agrees to the sit down, which ends up leading to his death, is because of Tony Jack. And when De Niro is shocked to hear on the phone, he's like, what, you changed your mind? He's like, yeah, well, Tony Jack called me. He's like, really? He's like, yeah, I mean, I like Tony. So that's critical what you are in that scene because you can't be too abrasive yeah. towards Pacino. Otherwise, he wouldn't trust you later on. That's yeah. critical. And I love that. And I love that moment. One of my favorite lines in the in the film too is when he goes, "You know, <laughs> you know that pro's cousin." <laughs> Emphasize that, you know. And I thought that was a great, great line. Tell me about the wardrobe because the purple pants. I mean, I can't get enough of that. Ah, man, the wardrobe. What a what an exciting. I mean, Sandy Powell, um, you know who you know, uh, you know was was an, just an extraordinary. Uh, designer and, and, you know, she's just an artist in her own right. Um, she was amazing. I mean, we tried on so many different suits. Um, and I have wide feet, so I remember one of the uh, whole things is, is I tried on, oh, my God, probably 30 pairs of shoes to find those little beautiful white shoes. Um, but, yeah, they had an amazing palette, you know, to create, you know, these scenes and all the wardrobe in these scenes. And the color palette for each scene is so... Um, emotional it's got such a, 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 a an energy to it you know the and the miami stuff in particular which was all sort of the blues and the pinks and the oranges you know um yeah i mean it was just a pleasure to get into that wardrobe you were as soon as you put it on you know you're just like this is this is exciting as hell because you you know as an actor for me and 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 as soon as you you know you can do a lot of work on your character and and but when you put on wardrobe, man, there's a, there's a click, you know, it, things change, you know, you really sort of step through the doorway. Um, and definitely when you would put these clothes on these meticulously chosen articles of clothing that reflected the, the, the time and the scene, oh man, it was powerful. It was like putting on a cape. <laughs> like I said, Sandy Powell is a legend, so I can only imagine the, like you said, the meticulous detail that goes with it. A cape. It's a like purple pants with a cape. I love it. Did you at any point, yeah. and I'm, I'm going to assume the answer is no, but at any point did you feel like, can I lobby Scorsese at all to be in the movie a little bit more? Like, is there any way you could kind of, because he seems like a generous guy. Like you said, he's open to collaboration. Did you at any point feel like, hey, just pull him aside, hey, Marty, what if we add one scene of Tony Jack doing this? Like, what? What, do you, what do you think? Can we, can we do that? At, yeah, I think at one point, let me let me remember what I said. I did say something because uh, he was like I said in the script. I had one line, and now I, I think I, I ended up having you know five lines, you know all all improvised. Um, which Marty said after you know after we had done a bunch of uh, a bunch of takes, he pulled me over and he's like, "You know what you're saying, so go ahead and just say it how you need to say it." Now I want I want to hear what you have to how you are going to, you know, you give me Tony Jack on the scene. I said, okay, okay. I'm thinking, I can't believe I'm just having a sidebar with Martin Scorsese right now. <laughs> uh, and he was so open to that. And that was it. So I ended up, you know, you know, wrangling myself five lines. But at one point, I think jokingly, we were working something out. And I said, you know, I said, uh, I said, this could be a good time for me to, to do like a whole monologue about traffic. And he, you know, started laughing about that. But that was like the most, you know, I, listen, I was looking at it like if I'm on, if, I, if I'm in the scene for, if, if it's a flash of me for a frame, it's an experience I'm never going to forget. And I, and I would never want to push it. Um, it'll, it'll be what it is. It'll, it'll be what it's supposed to be. So, um, you know, if I didn't push any of that, you know. 
No, but that's that's great that you actually gave that monologue line. He laughed about that because I could just imagine you'd be so many actors just chomping the bit. But you were smart enough to go, listen, I'm just going to service the role. I'm going to get the thing done. But he was being inviting and giving. So you're like, all right, listen, we're we're playing back and forth here. It's fine. So it's uh, like I said, it's an incredible film. It was my favorite film of the year. I think it's one of the best movies of the decade. I mean, trust me, I think it should have won every single Oscar out there. Trust me. I'll tell you, I'll tell you a great one last great little tidbit after the end of the after we finished shooting the scene. Um, and we kind of shot it in order. So the, the last scene was the fight, you know, at the end. And uh, we shot that, and uh, the scene was done, right? We, 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 and, and so Mark, uh, Scorsese and De Niro kind of, you know, we say goodbye, they get whisked away. And as they're walking away from the table, I say to De Niro, I say, uh, uh, Bob, Bob, I want to, I, 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 I got to get, a, can I get a picture with you and, and Marty? And he, and he reaches over a bunch of people that were kind of in the room and he grabs my arm and he pulls me through and he says, Marty, come on, Patty wants to, okay, now me, De Niro and Scorsese are standing there and, and we're laughing with each other and we put our arms around each other and we get ready to take this photograph and we're standing there. We all got our arms around each other. And after about 20 seconds, De Niro goes, did you get anybody to take the picture? And I did <laughs> We were just standing there. No one was there to photograph the, the image. Um, and then Rodrigo, the cinematographer, said, I'll do it for you. I'll do it for you. And then he came around. I gave him my phone. And then he shot it. Um, and then right after that, as I was going to shake, uh, they were leaving. And I went to shake De Niro's hand and I poked him in the eye. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, I'm so sorry. He's like, it's all right. It's all worry about. You know, it was like, you know, there was such a great energy. You know, they, they we was a, a lot of love. You know, and ease. No, but, but you're like such you know consummate actor, right? Just get in there, just do the part, be professional. And then I think it's, I think it's allowed. Like I think it's perfect. What you did was, hey, we're done. We're going home. Hey, can I just get a picture? Like that, that is just a natural instinct for anybody. Like I'm with two of the greatest of all time, actor and director. Like, hey, seriously, oh. can we get a picture? Like I think that's so good that you did that. Because I'm sure there's other people who'd be like, well, I don't want to bother them. Like bother you just shot all day. Of course, get a picture. It's no big deal. Oh, yeah, I, I could t listen, I wouldn't have done it if I didn't feel that, but we had been working together. I mean, we shot that scene. Remember, there was, you know, there's all of the, the CGI. There was so much um, involved in shooting scenes, camera crews, two different setups, and it was constant. It was so much, you know, we ended up shooting for, you know, out eight hours. That scene, that scene was literally all day. It was one day, that entire scene. Um, so it was a lot of coverage that he got on it and all that. So, you know, we spent a lot of time together and there was a, there was a comfort and there was a, like I said, a mutual respect for actors sitting at a table with literally total support of each other and an amazing director and crew, by the way, it, it, you know, every single person there all the way down to the PA has the, 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 the energy of I'm working for Scorsese right now. This is, this is amazing. You were where everybody wants to be, and everybody had that respect and put that energy into it. Um, and even Pacino, when he left, he left before we were done because, you know, the stunt guy came in to do the, the, the major part of the scene, the fight scene. And, uh, and I even got a picture with him, and he was the best. He was the best. I, he grabbed me, his assistant grabbed him, and he said, come on, let's get a picture. And, and he grabbed my arm, and we have a picture of uh, him with the arm around me, and he just went, you're good. And I was like, what the hell is happening right now? <laughs> well, that's, that's what I was about to say. It made me think of Field of Dreams. You know, Burt Lancaster you know, playing Moonlight Graham, right? He got a one at bat, yeah. never got a hit, and then he leaves, becomes a doctor. Obviously, he comes back to the game they're having. He has to leave the game to attend to Kevin Costner's daughter. And as he walks back to the cornfields, Ray Liotta playing Shulis Joe Jackson says, Hey, rookie, you were good. And I'm like, that. that is... Like, that's his life right there. So, like, Al yeah. Pacino telling you, like, hey, man, you're good. Like, like, dude, you're floating the rest of your life. Yeah, I mean, I mean, that's, that's what it was. I, I was like, and it, it, it was one of these things where every time we had a break, I would go out on, uh, I would go outside and call my mother. And, and we'd just be weeping on the phone. And then I'd come back in and do the thing. But they never knew that every time I left, 
the studio for a couple of minutes between a break, I'd be, I was crying on the phone. My mother goes, you paid my rent and you supported me. And then, I mean, what, you know, weeping and she's going, it, you did it. You did it. <laughs> and then I would come in and be like, okay, there was a lot of traffic. I mean, what do you want from me? You know, go right into it. Oh, it's perfect though. I love it. I love everything about your experience. I love the storytelling. Uh, tell us other stories, Patrick. I know you've done uh, the Deuce, Reno 911. Any other stuff you want to talk about? Wrote, directed a couple of films, Kansas, Roscoe as well. Yeah, 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 man. Uh, I mean, jeez, uh, I don't know what else I, I tell you. Deuce was uh, Deuce was a hell of a scene to shoot. Um, you know, very violent scene. Uh, once again, that kind of situation where, uh, as an actor, uh, and you know, being nude in that scene. Uh, gave me a big, uh, nice big bear popularity. I got, you know, I'm big with the bears. Uh, get a lot of emails from the bears, and uh, <laughs> but um, you know, that was the, the the one thing about that scene. I remember when I would sit in the chair uh, where I was for the majority of the scene, sitting in the chair naked, and every time between a take, uh, well, not every time because I made it clear, uh, and a PA would come over with a robe. <laughs> Get to let me cover my naked body between a setup, and I and I said no 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 don't don't I I want no robe, and then they would walk away. So I just sat nude the entire time. I was like, if I'm naked, I'm I'm naked. I don't have a robe. <laughs> I just you know all stocky sitting in the chair in this old you know hotel in Midtown Manhattan naked for like six hours. Oh. Um. And then, yeah, Kansas and Roscoe, those are all films that, uh, you know, Roscoe's based on a true story. Uh, this bird that I had that, that, that literally drove me crazy. And uh, I think my anxiety killed him. And then I felt guilty and gave him a funeral in Harlem. Uh, what other things? I mean, yeah, I mean, I got a ton of stories. I got to kind of be inspired, you know, to say them. Uh, Boardwalk Empire was amazing to shoot. Um, and a lot of people from Boardwalk that were a part of uh, part of the Irishman, which is cool. Um, getting my head bashed in on a beach in Staten Island. Super fun. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I mean, ask me anything else. I mean, I could, you know, if you inspire something, I'd tell you a good story. No, I was about to say, you've been more than generous telling me about the Irishman and that, that whole scene. I want to tell you how that came about, by the way. I'm watching it, as I said, over and over. And one of my best friends, Husband Hobji, is visiting me. He's an actor himself. And he's watching it. I go, God, I go, how good is this guy? I go, seriously, how good is this guy? We keep, I go, he's perfect. His casting is perfect. I go, he's not too much. He's not too little. He's perfectly serviced. He's so good. And he goes, listen, you're going to interview him for Cinephile. I go, what? I go, I, I, maybe he's busy, whatever. He's like, no, I'll do it right now for you. IMDb Pro, we get your information. This actually happened. Like, I, trust me, I'm overjoyed. This actually happened that you had the time to talk to me about it. Cause like I said, man, I, I watch movies and I study them scene by scene. Like, this is, you know, it's like when you take these master classes, like, that's like anatomy of a scene. Like, I think in the best film of the year, that's the best scene of the year, and you're critical to that. So, I listen, man, I just want to thank you for your generosity. Thank you for the performance. I know you're from Buffalo. Let me close with that. Since I'm from Toronto and you're from Buffalo, I'm going to assume you're a oh, huge cool. Bills fan. If you, want, if you want to talk a little Bills or Sabres or Toronto or QEW, well, you know whatever what? you want, I, it's all I, yours. Uh, two things I'll tell you right now. Bills, of course, I am because I'm from Buffalo, but I'm not like a big sports guy, so I never, I don't really follow them as much. I, I follow the heartbreak through my friends. Um, that they have for the Bills. <laughs> but um, what I was going to say, just back to that scene one more time, is, yeah, like you're saying, it's a master class. I mean, when I left, I thought, my God, like, how rare is it that as an actor, I got to have, a, literally have one of the, an acting class with both Pacino and De Niro. You know, that, that's what it was like. And D Pacino, uh, particularly, this guy, who is the coolest, mellowest, chillest guy who loves to chat, by the way. He, he loves to chat. And... This guy would say just one line, and it was like a it, it was like a brick dropped from the from the ceiling and landed on the table. And I remember looking at him, going like, "Oh my god! Like that's that's the work when you put all that work as an actor behind the words that you're saying. They do hit the ground like a hundred pound weight, and everything he said did. That's awesome, man. He was. He was, he was, uh, it was something else to, to, to be, you know, four feet away from him for hours like that, watching the words fall out of his mouth like these stones of genius.
You, you reminded me now since you said he's chatty. It's funny. Every interview that I've seen him and, you know, he's he's so funny because he's just like tangent after tangent, you know, pulling on his hair. and He's kind of just all over the place. And like, he's just, oh, yeah, he loves to talk to theater more than anything. So like and it's funny. They did so much together, like Al and Bob and promoting the movie. And De Niro, as always, of course, who I've interviewed before, and he's awesome. Like he's incredibly generous and he's very smart, very kind. Yeah. But but by nature, just taciturn, you know, like I picture him just reading and just being by himself and just, you know, that's, that's what he wants to do. Whereas Al, like you said, is very chatty. So I could imagine the two of those guys. It is like kind of like fire and water when you're listening to both those guys, especially being in a scene like that. Oh, yeah. And, there was, and, and, and of course, De Niro being much quieter and more selective. And, and there was one point where he had a break and, and the two of them were, and, and uh, Pacino was telling me that he was having trouble FaceTiming his kid. And, and I, I can't use a FaceTime. And De Niro just he goes, well, I, I showed him how to do it. You know, it's this kind of frustration of like, but he just doesn't get it. Uh, and I love the idea of De Niro trying to teach Pacino how to FaceTime with his kid. <laughs> well, that's, I bet to say, Josh Horwitz, a buddy of mine with MTV, he told me, I think Jessica Chastain told him, because he did, uh, Jessica Chastain did Salome, which is a movie Pacino did. It hasn't really been released widely, but it's like one of these passion projects, right. He does, right? Like looking for Richard and other stuff like that. So she goes, she goes, Chastain was telling Josh, she goes, Pacino, he goes, first of all, Pacino, huge texter, which is something I think would be a surprise, and uses a, a lot of emojis, which I said, that's amazing, picturing Al Pacino texting using emojis right now. That's amazing. Oh, my God. I, I would love to see, like, you know, when you open up your emojis, the ones you use most. <laughs> I would love to see his most used emoji. <laughs> he finds like a Shakespearean emoji. would be an emoji collection. Oh, yeah. That's amazing. Uh, this was amazing. Patrick Gallo is his name. You can follow him on Twitter, at Patrick Gallo, and look out for his work elsewhere. Like I said, he's been in a ton of stuff. Check out his uh, films he's written and directed, Kansas and Roscoe. He's been in Boardwalk Empire, The Deuce, Reno 9-11, and he was a part of my favorite movie, The Irishman. Great stuff, man. Seriously, I can't thank you enough for going into detail about everything. This is amazing to me. Oh, yeah, and, and throw up my, my Instagram, because I, I spend a lot more time on Instagram, which is, uh, if you don't mind... Uh, Perfect promoting my instagram which is uh, and i oh listen and if you know my it's chubomatic c-h-u-b-o-m-a-t-i-c um i would highly set, suggest you check it out because you unless you have already but i do all these weird remakes of 1980s music videos oh my god think about that cell i mean that i'm doing it right now as you're talking c-h-u-b-b-o-m-a-t-i-c yep i got you yeah, and if you go down a few, you'll see a, a, a little collection. <laughs> I like the fact that your bio is explicit. Watch 80s video remakes right here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is great. Everybody follow him. Patrick Gallo, C-H-U-B-O-M-A-T-I-C on Instagram. That's awesome. Yeah, dude, check it out, man. All right, thanks again, Patrick. Take care. Thanks a lot for having me, brother. This has been fantastic. <laughs> Mount Rushmore. All right, time now for the Mount Rushmore TV spinoffs. Um, we'll mention the show the spinoff was based on and then go from there. Of course, the inspiration is Better Call Saul, which absolutely is on my uh, top list here of the Mount Rushmore, the best TV show spinoffs. Also, The Simpsons. That's right. Joe going next level here. The research, The Tracy Ullman Show was originally what the spinoffs were, so it is technically a spinoff a show which is going to be around for 40 years, 50 years, who knows? It'll never stop. So The Simpsons obviously is on there. There's two of them. I'd love to get Joni Loves Chachi on here from Happy Days, but that's not going to happen. But I feel like I should should give some love here to Mork and Mindy. That's right, from Happy Days. Nanu, Nanu, uh, just for Robin Williams. I'm going to get one of those on there. And of course, I got to get Frasier. I mean, this is the ultimate heavyweight champion of spinoffs. Like Cheers is a celebrated, beloved show. And then Frasier won the best comedic series Emmy five years in a row. I mean, it was absolutely absurd that it kept beating Seinfeld. I mean, I think it's a great show. I don't think it's good as Seinfeld. I think Seinfeld should have won more best series than Frasier, but give it up for Frasier. I mean, who doesn't love David Hyde Pierce? Unbelievable as Niles. Uh, obviously, Kelsey Grammer is unforgettable in the role. John Mahoney, really good. Daphne, 
And the whole show is great. Who the hell doesn't like Frasier? Maybe he shouldn't have won five Best Series Emmys, but it is unquestionably one of the Mount Rushmore spinoffs. So that's my list. Pretty easy one for me, Joe. Better Call Saul, The Simpsons, Mork and Mindy, and Frasier. I like all those. It, it Yeah, that is a strong list. And I will agree with you on The Simpsons. I also watched and loved Frasier growing up. Since you put that on your list, I will opt and do the Colbert Report instead. So I have The Simpsons, Colbert Report, and then I'm going to go with Family Matters. Urkel, did nice. I do that? <laughs> yes. Uh, which was a spinoff of Perfect Strangers. And then here's my uh, under-the-radar pick. Most people don't realize that the Andy Griffith show was a spinoff of the Danny Thomas show where Andy uh, Griffith, the character, came on and did a segment on that show. And from there, they thought it was popular enough to start the Andy Griffith show. So I'll put that one on as my fourth. Wow, I love it. I thought you were going to start whistling the theme. Yeah, there. There, yeah, and young Ron Howard, who spent off and became a director. So that's how I tie it in. I love it. And uh, shout out probably to the worst one ever, Joey. I mean, just oh, yeah. an abomination. I mean, I love Dre DiMatteo. Of course, The Sopranos, my favorite show of all time. But Joey, one of the all-time Worst shows, I think, in TV history. Who the hell thought, you know, this would be a good show. We'll get Matt LeBlanc from Friends. He'll be the star. Joey Tribbiani, who cares? Like, that show sucked. <laughs> 100%. And, oh, if I may throw another one on my honorable mentions list, spinoff of Beavis and Butthead, Daria, uh, on MTV in the 90s. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but pretty funny. Okay. I have not seen Daria, but I like that list there. Give us your Mount Rushmore. As always, you can tweet us, Cinephile Potter, Adnan Esferk. Brett Carrick, uh, Yusuf's coach, will never speak to me again because I did not have Hoosiers on my list of best inspirational movies. So please do let me know where I aired. Total Recall. All right, now it's time for Total Recall. Uh, the reason, I, as I mentioned earlier, I want to do this is because Peter Fonda was so incredible in Yuli's Ghoul, which I watched again. I'm like, how the hell did this guy not win an Oscar? Oh, that's right. Jack Nicholson won it for as good as it gets. We'll do that in a second. But first, Joe, these are the films from 1997. So the 1998 Academy Awards Best Picture was a little movie called Titanic. What else was nominated? As Good As It Gets, The Full Monty, Goodwill Hunting, and L.A. Confidential. All right. Well, I'm going to go with L.A. Confidential. I thought it was an amazing film noir. It's a genre which I particularly love. Although I'm not a Titanic hater. I've only seen it once, and I liked it a lot. I saw it in the theater, and I thought, wow, especially the second half. I mean, that's incredible filmmaking and uh, obviously very memorable. I did not expect it to make a billion dollars, be the most successful movie of all time. But it's a gigantic movie, big themes. Uh, it's not my favorite for Best Picture. I would have gone with L.A. Confidential, but I wasn't uh, angry when it won. I do also really love As Good As It Gets, some of my favorite romantic comedies. Um, but yeah, I would go with L.A. Confidential myself, but no real quibbles with Titanic winning. I love L.A. Confidential, but I'm, I will go with Titanic, at least for yes. Best Picture. Just the scope, the scale of it, the sets that they had to build, just everything that had to come together to create that picture as it was, I'll pick Titanic for that reason. To your point, for Best Director, James Cameron won for Titanic. I think that's a no-brainer. I would have liked to have seen a little love for one of the nominees. Give us the nominees, and I'll tell you who. Peter Quintanao for The Full Monty, Gus Van Zant, Goodwill Hunting, Curtis Hansen, L.A. Confidential, and Adam Agoin, The Sweet Hereafter. Yeah, Adam Agoin's the one I was going to mention. The Canadian director, amazing job with The Sweet Hereafter. I'd love to have seen him actually win an Academy Award. He's had a phenomenal career. People in Canada obviously are well acquainted with his films like his Exotica and others. But the fact he got nominated for The Sweet Hereafter is amazing. It's a harrowing story with a bus crash and Ian Holm playing the ambulance-chasing lawyer. If you haven't seen it, you should check it out and check out the rest of Agoyan's work. But this is a no-brainer, like Joe mentioned, for James Cameron winning. Full Monty, by the way, pretty funny movie. I didn't realize it actually was nominated for Best Director as well. That's, that's kind of shocking now when I think about it. I mean, it's a funny movie, but a bunch of British guys are getting naked to raise money. And yet that was one of the five best pictures of the year and the director got nominated so props to peter cataneo not aware of his filmography otherwise and gus van sant for goodwill hunting that's a good reminder you always think about affleck and damon but gus van sant pretty good director in his own right he's the guy who directed it all right best actor was jack nicholson i mean listen he was amazing as melvin udall so funny caustic acerbic a guy battling ocd get in love with helen hunt 
but I've already gone on record as saying I wanted Peter Fonda to win. So Nicholson won. No real issue with it, although I would have gone with Fonda. What were the other nominees? Matt Damon for Goodwill Hunting, Robert Duvall, The Apostle, Peter Fonda, Ulysses Gold, and Dustin Hoffman, Wag the Dog. I tell you, that's about as good as the best actor class as you can get. Oh, yeah. I mean, Damon, right? That's a breakthrough performance for him. Goodwill Hunting, he was so memorable and tortured. He was like a young James Dean, you know, you're tearing me apart. Um, Robert Duvall, the apostle, I mean, a true passion project. I mean, he co-wrote it, he produced it, he directed it, he starred in it. That was a real firebrand performance. I would have had no issue if Duvall won. I think the apostle is one of his, that's probably actually his best acting performance. And I'm including Tom Hagen in The Godfather and uh, obviously Lieutenant Colonel Kilgore in Apocalypse Now, so many others along the way. Hoffman and Wag the Dog is hilarious. I mean, basically, he's he's uh, you know sending up all those Hollywood producers of the past here. I mean, it's, he's playing Robert Evans, uh, playing a character named Stanley Motts. Great script, uh, co-written by David Mamet. He's got good chemistry with De Niro. Uh, you know, when it's cooking, it's cooking. He's got so many good lines in that. But again, I got to go with Peter Fonda here. I'm, I'm riding with Peter Fonda, Yuli's Gold. Joe? I, you're right. This is acting class 101 with the best actor category, but I will agree with the Academy and go with Jack Nicholson for as good as it gets. How do you write a woman so well? I think of a man <laughs> and then I take away reason and accountability. I mean, he's, he is unbelievable. In that scene where he, you know, he tells her, you know, how he started taking the medication again. I mean, it's so sweet. I mean, that's a really romantic scene that he plays well. He goes, you make me want to be a better man. And then she says, that might be the nicest thing I've ever heard. He goes, well, maybe I overshot a little because I was aiming it just enough to keep you from walking out. A great, great scene. Speaking of, the best actress was Helen Hunt that year. What else was nominated? Helen Bama Carter for The Wings of the Dove, Julie Christie for Afterglow, Judy Dench, Miss Brown, and Kate Winslet, Titanic. Wouldn't have minded uh, Winslet winning just because the Titanic glow was so much about James Cameron. She was really good. Uh, Julie Christie, speaking of glows, Afterglow, Really good movie, but I go with Helen Hunt. I think she was really funny in the movie, dramatic. It was sweet. I think the Academy got it right. I'm glad she won. I'm I'm agreeing with the Academy a lot this year. So far, I've gone uh, every category with agreeing with the Academy, and I will continue to do so with Helen Hunt. <laughs> okay, four for four. How about best supporting actor? This was Robin Williams, his only Academy Award winning performance in Goodwill Hunting. Robert Forster for Jackie Brown, Anthony Hopkins, Amstad, Gray Kinnear, As Good As It Gets, and Burt Reynolds, Boogie Nights. Well, listen, Robin Williams' Lifetime Achievement Award, I had no issue with. I mean, he obviously was an incredible actor. He was so funny. Good Morning Vietnam, one of my favorites. And so I'm happy he won an Oscar. And I do think, by the way, he was legitimately great in the role. I don't mean to be uh, besmirching by saying, you know, Lifetime Achievement Award. I do think he gave a great performance as, uh, you know, this very kind psychologist who's willing to challenge Damon and... He's also really funny. The scene where he talks about where his wife farts, I mean, it's really funny. But I would have gone Robert Forrester, master of subtlety in Jackie Brown, Max Cherry. I mean, with that cast, you've got Sam Jackson and Robert De Niro and Bridget Fonda and Pam Greer and Forrester steals the entire movie. I thought he was perfection as Max Cherry. I would have given him an Oscar. Uh, he was fantastic in that movie, but I'm, I'm going to agree with the Academy again, and I'm going to go with Robin Williams. Um just mainly how he juxtaposes Matt Damon's character and so Robin Williams for sure. Also, by the way, I wouldn't have an issue with Burt Reynolds winning. He was hilarious as Jack Horner, oh, a yeah. porn producer. But you're right. This is one of those categories. There's too many other good ones. But I'm glad that Burt got nominated. How about supporting actress? Kim Basinger won for L.A. Confidential. Who else was nominated? Joan Cusack for In-N-Out, Mini Driver, Goodwill Hunting, Julian Moore, Boogie Nights, and Gloria Stewart for Titanic. Uh, Gloria Stewart, I believe, was like 92 at the time, winning for a tie. We're getting nominated for Titanic. I would have gone with Julianne Moore. I mean, I thought she was amazing in Boogie Nights. Definitely some overacting, which Bill Simmons has pointed out, the scene where she's talking about you know what she did when cheating on her husband and blah, blah, blah. But um, well, you know what? Kim Basinger is pretty good in LA Confidence. You know what the hell? I'm going to go with Julianne Moore for Boogie Nights, but I have no issue with Kim Basinger winning. I mean, she's really the... Uh, the female ideal in that movie, right? All these guys, so much machismo, and yet she is the real uh, center of uh, attraction for so many, especially Russell Crowe's character. So I would have gone with Julianne Moore for Boogie Nights because he's like the surrogate mother to Mark Wahlberg's character, but basically her winning, I have no issue with. I agree with you. I'm going to go with Julianne Moore too for Boogie Nights. I love it. Okay, best original screenplay. This was a big moment. Matt Damon and Ben Affleck won. What else was nominated? As Good As It Gets, Mark Andrus and James L. Brooks, Boogie Nights, Paul Thomas Anderson, Deconstructing Harry, Woody Allen, and the full Monty, Simon, Beaufort. I would have given it to P.T. Anderson for Boogie Nights. I mean, he takes a porn industry and makes it about a surrogate family. He's got unforgettable characters. Just the idea of Dirk Diggler. I mean, <laughs> Jack Horner, 
all these guys, Amber Waves. It's really funny. It's really smart. And yet it's surprisingly touching, which I don't know how the hell he's able to pull that off. And that's the mark of a great writer and also great director. It's a criminal he did not get nominated for directing. Now they look at the list. How the hell did Peter Cataneo, the full Monty, get nominated at P.T. Anderson? I would have gone with Paul Thomas Anderson for Boogie Nights. It was nice that Damon and Affleck won. Certainly a good story, good script. I also would have gone, I mean, as good as it gets, is, I mean, it's such a funny way. I mentioned all the one-liners, but I would have gone with P.T. Anderson. Uh, the, yeah, Boogie Nights is amazing. I I would normally go with Goodwill Hunting. I love the movie, love the script, but honestly, Boston in general wins too much, so I'll go with the full Monty just because it's funny and we need more representation of that at the Oscars. I like it. Good caller. Getting a little comedy love there, and you're right. Boston gets way too much love. I agree with you on that. And best adapted screen that went to L.A. Confidential. Brian Helgeland and Curtis Hansen adapted from the novel from James Elroy. What else was nominated? Donnie Brasco, The Sweet Hereafter, Wag the Dog, and the wings of the dove. I mean, I would have loved to have had a going and nominated. I mean, winning because he was nominated for the Sweet Hereafter. I mean, double nominee for screenplay and directing. Atanasio, amazing script with Donnie Brasco. I mean, he's a great writer. I love Quiz Show. It's another film that he's done. But I would have gone with Wag the Dog. Again, to Joe's point, satire and comedy never gets so much love. I would have loved to have seen David Mamet win an Academy Award. He and Hilary Hankin adapting the novel American Hero by Larry Beinhardt. Wag the Dog is an amazing movie. It's really funny, and I wish more people had seen it. But I think people that have seen it know how smart it is and how satirical it is. I agree with you. I like Wag the Dog, too. For the sake of Total Recall, I will go with LA Confidential, but you're right. It, it just the satirical aspect of it. It needs more representation at the Oscars. Definitely, we'll, we'll agree with. I love your it. You're right. LA Confidential definitely a great script. Very sprawling and and uh, a very smart story as well. All right. Thanks once again to Patrick Gowell. Follow him on Instagram, Chubomatic, C H U B O M A T I C, and follow him on Twitter as well, Patrick Gallo. He was great. Great stories. Thanks as always to my man Joe uh, coming on the train here with like five other people. It's crazy. Everybody stay home, stay safe. I'll be back next week here in Cinephile with a review of, speaking of Boston, a Boston cop show. It's called City on a Hill. It stars Kevin Bacon. It's on Showtime. I'll give you my thoughts on it when we come back. And until then, I'll see you at the movies. <laughs>